Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 74 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the twisted genius, Dean Ayers, and I'm joined as ever by my esteemed, yes, I've brought that word back, colleague, Liam Hap, how are you doing, Liam? Oh, don't mind me, Dean. I'm just waiting for you to bring up Charlton Athletics right now that they've actually been taken over and they're not going down the shitter. Yeah! Taken over by the baby faces. Yeah, enter Sandman. Thomas Sandgard has completed his takeover of the club in what turns out it looks like a rather clever way because while the Cowboys who were bickering over the rights of the club to basically so they can keep hold of the luxury flat and the Range Rovers they they help themselves to with this with this false takeover basically put it in because it's, it's, it's mostly the same characters who are around the Berry situation and Berry are no longer in the Football League because of what they did and while they were arguing for their little piece of the scraps in court Sangard found a way round to purchase the club and leave them come they were arguing in court for nothing in the end he owns the club and it'll be a slow road back because we got relegated and we've we, we've lost a couple of early games but with this with this sort of backing and hopefully some stability in someone who actually wants a club to succeed things all by the time we get to say that like episode 100 of this podcast, I'll be boring our wrestling fan listeners with the with the great successes of Charlton Athletic Football Club under our Danish owner. But it does it does appear that um, with uh, with the COVID situation as it is that the because WCW derby of Ipswich v Charlton will not be attended by either of us. There will be no field trip. We'll find something else. It's usually wrestling that brings us together. I don't think we've ever attended yeah. a football match together, have we? We haven't. No, it has been wrestling. But yeah, so I, I spent an interesting weekend on Twitter debating with Dave Meltz and a few other people why uh, Big Daddy should not be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, that was fun. Oh, you're as bad as Alan Cheapshot. He doesn't shut up about that. He he, that is his hill to die. It appears, but um, but no, I um, I I said that because uh, I I don't know if you you know I I am for some somehow God knows how, but I am one of the people that gets a vote in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and um, I will not vote for Big Daddy because his matches were bloody terrible. So um, but you'll vote for Loch Ness. Loch Loch Ness isn't on the ballot. But, um, I'd, I'd be more prepared to vote for him than uh, than Big Daddy. Anyway, we have got another pay-per-view review, and we have got ourselves a very special special guest because you know you know how like sometimes we get people who are like you know famous in the world of wrestling, right? More like Paul Benson. <laughs> well, I was thinking more like you know Doug Williams, Jeff Jarrett. Oh no, I, I just wanted to get in a shot at Paul Benson. <laughs> We we have got someone who is like is like actual famous. He's like he's been, right. This man has been on Celebrity Mastermind answering questions about wrestling. That that's how this whole thing started. Uh, he is an actor, a presenter, a campaigner. And I'm very pleased to say welcome to because WCW to Adam Pearson. Hello, Adam. 
Hello, gentlemen. How are we? Leon, how don't you dare talk shit about Paul Benson in front of me? <laughs> well, that's like one of our regular features, so this could be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, get get Rob McNichol back on, Dean. He loved it. He thoroughly enjoyed putting <laughs> the boots in on Paul. Oh, man, yes. Three three hours plus. The only podcast that lasted longer than the pay-per-views with dear old Rob. But, uh, so, um, so yeah, I, uh, how how long um, have have you been a wrestling fan, Adam? Because you know, until until my mum rang me up and said there's a bloke on Mastermind answering questions about wrestling, I I had no idea you were a wrestling fan. So I'd always been aware of wrestling as as a child. I'm I'm like 35, so I was born in in 1985, and you know we I was part of the the, the tape trading scene in in the playground and, and what have you. But I started properly following it. The first pay-per-view I watched before I started watching it week to week was the Deadly Game Tournament Survivor Series 1998. Okay. The birth of the corporate champion. And just watching all the, the pageantry of it. Because by this point, the cat was out, out of the bag. Yeah. And everyone knew that, that it wasn't wasn't real. But even in watching how, how the mechanics of it worked, and we'd all be in, in the library at school on, it, it's called No DQ now, but back then it was called WWFWCW.com, like checking the dirt sheets and the news and, and figuring out what was going on behind the scenes during the Monday Night War, who was coming where and, and what have you. And there was that Monday when the radicals turned up on Raw and everyone lost their collective minds because no matter what <laughs> camp you were in, you had a horse in that race, so so to speak. And then I sort of just kept watching it. I've been watching, you know, a lot of WWE. It was a huge um, kind of old era TNA guy back when they had AJ Daniels and Samoa Joe essentially holding the indies down. Yeah, glory between days. Between them. And then from that, you find things like Ring of Honor, and then if you dig a bit deeper, you end up finding the old ECW stuff. And then from there, you go down a massive rabbit hole of combat zone wrestling and the, the really kind of hardcore stuff. And I just found the whole the whole thing utterly fascinating. I love the pageantry of it. I, I vastly admire the athletic discipline that is involved. Because I think when people go, oh, it's, it's fake, I think that's completely the wrong word to use. I think it's predetermined. Yeah, but it, you know, I, I bumped in a wrestling ring. It hurts. Oh, I've, yes. I've, I've got I've got friends who are wrestlers. Um, Simon Miller, a good friend of mine, couldn't move his shoulder for six months. So don't don't, don't tell me that, that this is fake when I've got to like open a can for a, a man who's twice my size. And I, I'm just such a huge fan of it. And also, it, it brings people together. Most of my good friends I've met who are who are still in life I've met through wrestling, be it on podcasts who live in the States or guys who are based in the UK who I'd only known peripherally under fake names and are really good friends of mine whose weddings I've been to, who I've been groomsmen for, whose pod- other podcasts I've, I've co-presented. I think I gave one guy a reference for a job having met him once. And, you know, that, <laughs> wow. that's, that's the crazy world that, that wrestling is. It, it really does bring people together. I'm sure you, well, I know for a fact that you've met like loads of crazy people through the wonderful world that is pro wrestling. 
absolutely friend yeah lifelong friends that i've met through through wrestling yeah it's been it's been tremendous um also uh, also met this ben and liam obviously but you know you can't have it all can you thanks mate yeah you're right there oh you, you anytime mate yeah you know um, so We've all yeah. got that one mate, don't we? That sat next to us on the first day of school yeah. and he just hung around for 30 years. Yeah, I haven't even called him a blue tick wanker yet, so you know, if we reel it in the uh, hap. But um, so um, I described you earlier as, a, as an actor, a presenter, and, and a campaigner. What, uh, for people who may not be aware, what, what do you campaign uh, for and about? So um, I campaign around the areas of kind of disability and equality. That, that's how it started. I have a facial disfigurement. So I started doing more social side of things, just trying to kind of raise awareness and understanding, which then in turn will increase acceptance, just trying to remove a lot of the, the fear and anxiety around disability oh. and disfigurement. Because when you see something that you haven't seen before, it's a hard reaction to go into kind of flight or fight. And to make to be able to create an environment where we can have a conversation and cut through that that kind of hardwired bias is is what I'm aiming for. And then I sort of fell into presenting and acting, and realised that the the industry is woefully underrepresented in terms of disability, both on screen and on screen. And so now I do a lot of work with like the big channels and the companies to try and increase the the amount of disabled talent. And increase equality, not equity. I've got no interest in increasing equity, but give real equality of opportunity to disabled talent to come into an industry where they previously weren't well taken care of, and and showcase their skills. I see, and I, I mean, I'm I'm trying to remember the first time I became aware of you. Would I be right in thinking it would have been many years ago on the the Undateables TV show that you worked on as well? Is that would that be the first time you were in in front of the camera? So I wasn't in front of the camera on the Undateables. I was the the casting researcher for the first six series. Oh, okay. One, one of my wrestling friends, I I cast in that, and I I got him, I got him, I called him up and said, and my my boss was sitting at the desk next to me. And I was like, Steve, do you want to go on your dateables? And he was like, oh, I, I don't know, really. I'm not, I'm not really sure. And I went, come on, at least make me for lunch and we'll, we'll have a chat. And he went, oh, OK. And then I, I, before I hang up, I just like, Steve, I promise you, if you go on this show, you'll absolutely get laid and put the phone down. <laughs> and then I, I have to go to this meeting with my boss. He's like, Adam, you can't, you can't say that because Nancy, Nancy doesn't get laid. We've broken editorial policy. <laughs> it's a verbal like, well, contract, damn it. I was like, well, you, you know what? If that's your only exemption, if it doesn't happen, I'll pin him down myself and I'll do it. <laughs> then no one's broken editorial policy and we can all move on. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> But no, but before that, I'd done loads of BBC Three documentaries on things like disability, hate crime. Um, I did one on the history of vaudeville and and freak shows. I did a Channel Four food program for five years, which turned me according. And these are these are my my sort of girlfriend. Life is complicated. Well, it's not mine. A pretentious ass. Because beforehand, I'd just eat anything anywhere. Whereas now, I walk past like a McDonald's or a KFC and just shake my head. <laughs> See, I do as well, but that's because I can't eat wheat. Otherwise, I'd be I'd be chowing down in there for forevermore. But I mean, 
how how have you have you seen over the you know you're campaigning for as you say for for better acceptance awareness of of, of disabilities have you have you noticed a, a difference over the years now in how people react and respond to 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 you well with, with me because of, of how i look at my disfigurement people used to kind of point and stare all the time whereas now they're, they're doing the same thing but maybe for a different reason maybe now i've got some kind of profile and i have a name behind me i'm either the guy from channel four um i did a film with scarlett johansson that made me like globally famous in like a week which was an insane thing to be in, involved with. I got really lucky on that one. But yeah. mind, I, I only applied as a joke. And, on, oh, and I, I got hit and I got hit by a car and broke my leg on the way to the audition. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was got hit by a car on Tottenham Court Road, broke my leg, called the director, who's like a proper famous director. He's the guy that did those old black and white Guinness adverts. Oh yeah. With the horses and the stuff. Yeah, him. I was like, hey, funny story, I've been hit by a car, I think my leg's broken, I'm still really keen, don't think I'm not keen, I'm just going to be about 10 minutes late. <laughs> 10 minutes well, late with a yeah, broken yeah. leg. When, when, my, when my knee and my foot aren't pointing the same way, I'm going to be about 10 <laughs> minutes late. <laughs> and then, then all these paramedics turn up, because it was around the corner from UCL, and, so, and then he eventually finds me, at which point I'm under a taxi in my pants, surrounded by paramedics high as giraffe pussy on morphine and apparently because again morphine the conversation went nicely he said bloody hand adam i didn't realize you did your own stunt work to which, I re to which i replied do i look like i've got a fucking stunt double and i got offered a job <laughs> listen up slap nuts that's right this is jeff jarrett the chosen one and you're listening to because wcw now choke on that. Oh man, that is, I think you've just won the award for best stories told on because WCW. There. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, I mean, do we do we need to cover a, a pay per view? We can just wrap it up there, can't we? Well, I mean, he's just been talking about being uh, off his tits on morphine in his pants, and that's WCW all over, surely. Well, at least that's booking WCW. Yeah. Speaking that of is... which. The, the pay-per-view we are covering. The pay-per-view we are covering. What <laughs> What is it and, and why have you chosen it? I I have chosen. I am so sorry. I have chosen <laughs> Slam Marie 2000 because it has a triple cage in it. And also, when you first tweeted me to ask me, I might have been a bit drunk. So that, that's, <laughs> that's why we're here. Well, here we are. We've hey, we we reviewed um, uh, Spring Stampede 2000, the preceding pay per view with Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and we haven't Desert, forgiven the Priscilla since. No, um, not too long ago, and and that was that was yeah horrendous. So we are we are hardened to the to these kind of things. So well, let's let's kick things off. So we we start the pay per view off with a video recap from last week's Thunder, uh, which shows the formation of the Millionaires Club led by Ric Flair to combat Rick. Uh, Eric Bischoff's stable of the new blood. Um, we then see the Millionaires Club united as they step off a coach that drives out our venue for the evening, the infamous Kemper Arena in Kansas City. Now, I never get this. It's Kansas City, but Kansas City, Missouri. And I always thought Kansas City should be in Kansas. But hey, what do I know? Um, anyone know how that works? 
American geography is like really confusing. Yeah, if uh, if you're listening to this and you're American and you live in Kansas or Missouri, please do tweet us at because WCW and tell me how that works. Um, we then have another video montage and we sadly see that uh, Vince Russo is still involved. My heart sinks a little bit. Um, our main event is a triple cage match between DDP, Jeff Jarrett, and believe it or not, the current reigning world champion David Arquette. But thankfully, we go straight into the action without any further ado and it is a match for the cruiserweight title as chris candido with tammy lynn sitch defends against former champion the artist with paisley and uh, tammy says that missouri is known as the show me state but she'll show us what she's got underneath an elaborate coat and she reveals a shiny silver dress that's so short you can just about call it a dress um the artist comes out to his usual complete lack of reaction from anyone and uh, i forgot until the match began that the artist wrestles in a dress shirt and trousers and looks pretty ridiculous because surely everyone knows the only two people in the world who are ever able to wrestle in a shirt and trousers were IRS and Mr. Hughes. Um, Candido takes a huge bump over the ring post to the floor. He soon recovers to leap from the top rope to the floor on top of the artist. He then throws him up onto the WCW pay-per-view entrance ramp, which is making a welcome return after a long time away. Back in the ring, the artist just about manages to keep Candido up for a powerbomb. An attempted sunset flip is horribly botched. Candido tries his best to go with it. Uh, he climbs to the top, but is intercepted, and the artist hits a top rope Samoan drop. Paisley puts a chair on the ramp for the artist, but she then gets into an altercation with Tammy, which ends with Tammy smacking the artist over the head with a chair, which looks particularly nasty. Um, Candido then makes the cover and the sound guy hits Candido's music too early because the artist raises an arm up just in the nick of time, even though that did feel like the perfect finish for the match. Tammy even got in the ring to celebrate. I don't know if that was a botch or what. Um, he then pile drives the artist, hits a top rope head drop, uh, headbutt, and then it gets the three count in seven minutes, 59 after the match. Paisley strips Tammy of her dress. And you know what I'm going to say, Liam? It was a different time. Uh, Adam, what do you think of this opener? So, from, from the start, my, my notes so far, in chronological order... Go for are, it. Oh, Jesus, Rick Flair looks young. Um, ah, 4.3 in SD. Old school. And then we go to, the bell hasn't rung, but the misogyny has started. Watching this with my mum was a mistake. <laughs> yep. And, yeah, and I'll, then, I'll agree and, with you on that one. And then there's a lot of it about me just saying how much I like and miss Chris Candido. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he was such a such a great talent, such a good wrestling brain on him as well. Oh, yeah, when he switched over to management, because that's my last memory of him, was when... Because he broke his leg at the first lockdown pay-per-view. That's right, yeah. And then he managed the Naturals in TNA. And they won the tag belts on an episode of Impact. And the last like actual footage of him on, on TNA TV, he was just sitting on the ground with his leg in a cast, grinning, holding both the tag belts. Because yes. he just won them. And just, ah, oh, such a good worker. So, so, there's a lot of really underrated talent on this pay-per-view. He didn't get anywhere near the pushes they they deserved, and he's very much one of them. Definitely. And but it was, and I was really disappointed because I was a huge fan of like the the whole cruiserweight division. I think it's what WCW, it was what separated them from WWF WWE. 
Mm. You, you know, you had guys like Kinman, Rey Mysterio Jr., Blitzkrieg. You had Ultimo Dragon on on your roster, and it was all really high paced. Whereas this was just a bit of a, a plodding botch fest from from start to finish. And the the artists, why why dress like that? Why even change it from Prince Iakea? I like Prince Iakea. I don't like the artist. And oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already regret picking this game. Already regret picking this game. <laughs> There's plenty of time yet. <laughs> plenty of time. Liam, what do you what do you think of this? Art of the opener and all that. Yeah, well first off I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that, that rhetorical question posed by Adam. The reason why they've decided to change Prince Arca to the artist is because there is you know, a, a well known famous pop recorder called Prince and it means they can do a reference to Prince. And that's it. That That is literally why they did it. They just thought, oh, imagine if we acted like it was not Prince as in a, uh, a, a Samoan tribal chief when we were ripping off Rocky Maivia. Let's just rip off someone from the mainstream instead. And obviously they've picked someone who probably hadn't even listened to a Prince record before it because when he tries to, to ape Prince in the, in the entrance and that, he, it's about as convincing as his in-ring work. Uh, yeah, the reason why these two guys are fighting over the Cruiserweight Championship is because in the Russo and Bischoff era, they're the two with valets, and that means their match will have a cat fight. I wish I was mm-hmm. joking. That is literally why they're fighting over the title. Obviously, Candido is a terrific engineer. When we talk about Mortar and the Bricks in, on a roster, he really is a, a Mortar guy that can hold things together and have a good match with so many different types of people. And in the whole mess of WCW 2000, we saw when we covered Uncensored just before the Bischoff-Russo era. Sorry, I mean era. Uh, things were a massive mess even before that, and Candido had just arrived on that last pay-per-view, and even then he was being positioned to to be a a high-ranking guy in that cruiserweight division. So th- this was always going to be a thing, and here he is. But even he can't get too much out of yeah. Prince Iakea, who who Finn Martin in Power Slam, a, a frequent former guest of ours, I remember him describing him in the magazine years ago as insipid. And I don't think there's a better word for Prince Iakea as a wrestler than insipid. Um, the... it's, it's just a really sort of messy match, isn't it? There's no, so, there's no yeah. coherent story. No one's really selling, and it, 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 no one. That, yeah, there's one minute you're on the offense, the next minute you're you're on the on the receiving end of the move, and it's it's just yeah. It's, when it Candido can't hold it together for you, just retire, dude. You know, uh, and that botch at the end with the music playing. I'll say one thing about that. It's have you guys noticed that WCW had a regular habit of hitting the music like they would be super fast in it every time, every year, every era. That was always a WCW trait was that when someone did get the pin, that music will be on super fast. Whereas in WWE and most other promotions, there'd be a more logical pause because the guy in charge of it would then go and queue up their music. Um, and it bit them on the arse here because he was too trigger happy. And although it did, if it's examples, I'm pretty certain that it did happen at least once or twice elsewhere. 
So we then go to our commentary table uh, and we see the team at ringside, Tony Schiavone accompanied by Scott Hudson and Mark Madden. We then see a montage of Terry Funk being put through tables and hit with chairs, um, which really only goes to show how meaningless these once shocking stunts had become in wrestling by the year 2000. But it's another title match. It's a handicap match for the WCW hardcore title as Terry Funk defends his title against Norman smiley and a mystery partner um which does prompt the question and feel free to answer this if you can think of an answer but if it's a handicap match how would two people theoretically win a singles title i'm pretty sure someone's tried to do that before i'm I'm pretty sure it's happened before i think we had china and chris jericho as co-champions Kazarian and Michael Shane in TNA, I think, were co-ex champions. They call in WWE. They they had a fight over the belt and pulled it in half. And 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 actually, a thing. I'm not making this up. And so they were like kind of co-champions. And it it has been known to happen. It's never ended well, but it has been known to happen. Oh, fair enough. Well, maybe WCW started it. And this wasn't the, the the only time that WCW had two people on a team competing for a singles title. Um, so we start backstage and um, once again, Funk is asking people where Smiley is and a whole cluster of people all point in the same direction. And Funk wanders off in pursuit of Smiley, very similar to what we saw at um, Spring Stampede. Grasses. <laughs> Hey, come on now. If Terry Funk asks you where someone is, you tell him. Um, Funk heads to the bathroom and opens a cubicle, but um, he's blindsided by Smiley with a fire extinguisher, um, and it's someone else that's in the in the cubicle. Um, Smiley's mystery partner, who, who was the one hiding in the cubicle, is dressed in similar baseball gear to Smiley, but with a catcher's mask on, obscuring his identity. Um, they're assaulting Funk with a variety of rubbish bins, both legit bins filled with rubbish and the the famous favourite old uh, aluminium bins that Tony Schiavone uh, mentioned once don't hurt. Um, Smiley is so pleased with his work that at one point he does a celebratory wiggle. Um, Funk gets a bin thrown at his head and somehow manages to bump himself onto a table and then turn over the table as well. The man is a genius. I don't know who anyone else is. Um, Funk then starts his offense against Smiley and the mystery partner is standing on top of a large pile of, well, I can only think, I think they're reels of artificial turf used for football games. Um, And he's raining down empty cardboard boxes onto Funk, which obviously has no effect on him. But Funk retaliates by throwing chairs up onto the mystery assailant with tremendous accuracy. <laughs> um, Funk and Smiley continue brawling, but the mystery partner is just sort of following them around, doing nothing. And the commentators say he's clueless, he's blown up, and he's basically the worst partner ever. Um, he then hits Funk with a bin, but Funk no-sells each shot, and Funk then drags the mystery partner to the entranceway as Hudson calls him a big useless lump on commentary. Funk nails him across the bank back with a chair and continues dragging him down the rampway and unmasks him as Ralphus, whose trousers are almost falling down at this point. Um, 
and then the fact that his trousers do entirely get pulled down by Funk. Um, finally, Smiley rescues him, smacks a ladder over Funk's head, and does the big wiggle, which Funk sells like nobody else. Um, Ralphus then does a wiggle, but gets stopped by uh, a chair shot from Funk. Another chair shot then KOs Ralphus, and as Smiley goes to check on him, Funk rolls him up for the pin. Yes, a roll-up gets the pin in 10 minutes and three seconds. Um, what what a spectacle. Adam, what do you think of this one? I, I also have, at the end of my notes on this match, a roll-up. Really? <laughs> In a hardcore match, you run with a roll-up. This this was everything I wanted it to be, and more. Well, I don't know what the hell a Ralphus is, but I quite enjoyed it. I've always been a fan of Norman Swiley. Norman Swiley is utterly hilarious. Yes. In 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 this match, um, and just the, the constant screaming and and the shouting and I don't know what a possum playing ass is, but I'm not going to question an angry Terry Funk. <laughs> um, at, at one point, the commentators literally say "kill him," which I thought was a little bit a little bit extreme, but we'll we'll move on. And yeah, the the stuff on the the Astro turf where Terry Funk is just whipping chairs up there without really looking, let's be honest. And, and oh, it was it was just so, so funny. But that's this, the thing, he's not really looking, yet he's hitting Ralphus every time with every chair he throws up there. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. With, with, like, not a care in the world, but all <laughs> the strength that a man of that age should not have. Yes. And it's, it's just amazing. And then he doesn't sell any of the, the, the cardboard boxes. Yeah, fine, no selling. But the bin stuff he doesn't sell. But he's really trying. And I'm, I'm just there thinking, I don't know if Terry Funk gives a fuck about this match or not. And I should know. And oh, it, no, it, it, it's probably my favourite thing on the card. It is it is a joy to watch, but that's I mean we we love Terry Funk on this podcast, and um and, and that match is a joy to watch. Liam, what do you think of this one? Yeah, we love Terry Funk. I think one of us even managed him once or something. I, I heard a rumor. Yeah, yeah, I heard a rumor. But I didn't want people finding out that I had indeed managed Terry Funk. So that's true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, those those chair flings of funks are oh, they reminded me of do you know when the Harlem Globetrotters would throw the ball backwards over their head from the halfway line and score a basket yeah so something like that um, Ra- Ralphus w- was previously in WCW during Chris Jericho's Dynamite 1998 run when he was a comedic character cruiserweight and TV champion and he hired Ralphus as his head of security to counter Jer- the Jericho uh, personal security wasn't it yeah to count when he was mocking Goldberg and he counter his entrances with the security entourage and he'd have this like this overweight middle-aged man uh, and he, was, um, he was one of the truck drivers, wasn't he? That was what his actual role was yeah, within the and, company. And they seamlessly brought him in, and he did a good job with the with the daftness. Uh, funny enough, it's, it's funny we're we're covering this match now because you'll remember. Um, turns out Ralph has passed away last year, but it only became common knowledge uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago. There was yeah, they had indeed passed away. Just sad news. Um, but he, yeah, he, he brought in these comedy style matches. He brought something. It was, it was a good fit to have him here. Uh, Smiley and Funk, they kind of, you know, the hardcore division concept 
had all but run its course. I think around this same time, WWE managed to milk it a little longer with the 24-7 rule. Uh, the Crash Holly stuff was pretty funny. That was good stuff. It was around this time frame. And WCW's own way of milking some extra life out of and extending its lifespan was with Smiley and Funk. And they were the last bastions of entertainment for what was becoming a really tiresome garbage thing filled yeah. with the likes of Brian Nobbs. So, um, yeah, uh, they, they, they always entertained. It was always a bit daft. And with all the other stuff you've got going on in the show, it can be a bit much. But, yeah, you sit and you watch. A, similar to what we said about the Spring Stampede one, I think. You just sit and watch this. Priscilla was a huge fan. It's just, it, it's, it's really funny stuff. It's... Yeah. I, the only, the only thing that I would say I, I felt uncomfortable with what, and this is one of those situations of, you know, watching with 2020 eyes, whereas, you know, back in 2000. As in the year 2020. Attitude, yes. <laughs> now we got to <laughs> make that 20... distinction. Hey, yes. Um, was seeing two middle-aged men, one who isn't a trained wrestler, taking multiple chair shots to the head. Um, and you know, as I know myself with my my five concussions, as you as you often quote Liam, um, it's yeah. You know, we I mean we didn't know at the time. This is the, the excuse people give. And, you Who know, could it, have thought the repeated shots to the head with a steel object would do this sort of damage? Yeah. Thank but... God for all these extensive <laughs> scientific tests. They've really opened our eyes. They have, but but it's yeah that that's that's not a good. I mean, there are lots of chair shots to the back and stuff like that, and that's fair enough. But yeah, chair shots to the head, especially on the guy who who you know looked like he was a bit shaky to start with and wasn't a trained wrestler. Yeah, I'm not too sure on that one. My other criticism of the match is that Terry Funk didn't grab a mic halfway through and declare that this was now an I quit match. I quit match. This is true. <laughs> yes, as he did on the previous show. Yeah, I mean, oh, oh, as we uh, said, he should have made that his gimmick. Every match he had, he should have just randomly declared it was an I quit match with the announcers doing their best <laughs> to play damage control and say, no, this is not an I quit match. No one has sanctioned <laughs> this. He's he he's just being Terry Funk. It's not an I quit match. Yes. but um, or, or just bringing a raw chicken out. <laughs> Why not? Which he did before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we then see David Arquette arrive on his own in a limo. Mean Gene interviews him. Arquette says he's on his own. He's not a member of the Millionaires Club. He said he's made his millions on his own. Um, we then go into match number three, which is uh, a battle of second generation stars. Sean Stasiak versus Kurt Hennig. And uh, the perfect one, Sean Stasiak, comes out to his Mr. Perfect rip-off entrance music. Um, then the real Mr. Perfect, obviously not called Mr. Perfect, here comes out to his to generic music, although to be fair, that could be a, a network overdub. Um, it's Millionaire's Club v. New Blood. Um, after an even back and forth start, the match breaks down, spills to the floor where Stasiak chokes Hennig with a ta- uh, with a cable, which is allowed under the uh, relaxed rules of the Bischoff and Russo regime. And it might be the last time we hear about them. Um, a top rope clothesline from Stasiak gets a two count. Hennig attempts a slam on the ramp, but hurts his back and can't complete the move. Um, so Stasiak then capitalizes on the back injury by clamping on a sleeper hold, as you do. Um, unless 
unless, of course, the back, back niggle was legit. Otherwise, that makes no sense at all. Um, Stasiak misses the top rope cross body block, crashes to the canvas. Hennig is punching him repeatedly in the corner. Uh, referee Charles Robinson pulls him off, not like that, and warns him. Um, Stasiak then fires back with a slingshot into the corner where Hennig hits his head on the metal support. And Stasiak then hits a fisherman's suplex out of nowhere for a clean pinfall win over Kurt Hennig with his own move in 7 minutes 54 seconds. What do you make of this one, Adam? I'm pretty certain this is the only clean finish of the whole show. You could very I'm well be right. Pretty certain. And when Stasiak came out, my first thought was, isn't that meat from PMS yes. in WWE? It is how indeed. How has he fallen from that? And and again, wrong. I think the wrong person went over. Kurt Henning, again, genius. One of the old, old great wrestling minds. And, you know, this this sort of happened, but it's just an overly forgettable seven-minute match in in a card that was overbooked to to high heaven, wasn't it, really? Mm. And uh, I just... The, the whole thing as well I, I see when watching this match is just how underutilized Kurt Hennig seems to be. And it's it's one we've seen this before with other people that are big, big stars in WWF and then they go to WCW and and that spark just isn't quite there. I mean we we saw it with with Davey Boy Smith, we saw it with the big boss man. They're they're never quite what they were in the WWF for whatever reason. Well, I mean if you think about Hennig's time in this particular spell, he arrives in 97, he, he starts off hot with the whole pretending join the horseman, turns, joins the NWO, that's all pretty good. He's United States champion, puts over DDP quite well, but then ar- around 1998, nothing he really did was, was that inspiring. And obviously the, the company was having its own issues, getting a bit repetitive on top, but Hennig really wasn't providing anything on the scene after 1997 and after that he he did start to find a bit of a groove in the mid card with the west test with the west texas rednecks in 99 and rapids mm. crap and all that which was brilliant mm. but yeah at, at this juncture he is he's a mid carder he's there to and i'm sure he backstage he's probably the exact same he he was there to to help others and this is one of the the storylines that actually has a trace of logic in the whole overall narrative of new blood trying to usurp the millionaires club and get them out of the company which apparently is a storyline but they they soon lose focus of that within a within a few weeks couple of months of the of the storyline is that a guy has come in and debuted and he's ripping off what Hennig used to be. He's he's like the new version. You know, you see TVs and movies take this basic premise all the time, and you know he he started off in Act One by 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 beating the old lion with with his own move. Um, obviously, it, it'd be better if it weren't such a, a stiff wooden wrestler like Sean Stasiak, who 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 never really did no matter what roles they gave him, he was always the he always stood out as the as the least effective guy there. I remember we covered the last pay-per-view where they paired him up with Stacy Keebler, which was, you know, it could have been a bit of a saviour because Stacy Keebler can just do all the charisma for him. And he just has to be a, a like a 
<laughs> just a, just an airhead dude in the ring. But everything he did, natural thrillers, he, he was always lagging well behind. So, yeah, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this was going to be a bit of a wasted rub from Kurt Hennig. But at least the storyline sense checks out with one problem. The whole thing they're talking about, the perfect one, the rip-off of Mr. Perfect uh, music, talking about Kurt Hennig's old life. To find all this, if you don't know what they're talking about, to find all this, you have to go check out the competition. Mm. So they're shooting themselves in the foot by referencing all this stuff from from somewhere else. So, yeah, mm. the whole the whole thing just defies logic. And that's not the last time on this show it will happen because we get with um, Shane Douglas and ECW being referenced later on. Yeah, they constantly did that. That was their ultimate downfall, WCW. The, the famous, that'll put bums on seats, mm. referencing the competition. That happened on the same episode as the Singapore Poker Doom, which I didn't know until really recently. Was that the same... Yeah, January yeah. infamous, absolutely infamous. We we covered that extensively during Hooked on Wrestling's Nitro Week special. Yes, indeed. Uh, that was obviously a big talking point throughout that. But I mean, I I was going to mention this later on, but I think we we've, we've we've reached a good point now that this this Millionaires Club v New Blood feud, the the potential was huge, and it could have been a really big thing to move WCW on but for for numerous reasons it it just didn't work and one one I mean we we've we know about the creative control and that these guys had but the most basic thing to me is that throughout this whole pay-per-view and I don't know how you feel about this Adam but I I just felt that the the millionaires club should be the the heels the ones you know trying to desperately hold on to power and the new blood of the baby faces but half the time the the some well you had some guys were booked as baby faces some were booked as heels and there was no real consistency for so the crowd couldn't get behind it no there's no continuity of thought or, or continuity of, of storytelling and it's like they've just got loads of random characters throwing them in stables but they've kept their individual characters and there's no, no cohesion. And again, you referenced Bricks and Mortar with, with Chris Candido. There's none of that Bricks and Mortar storytelling here whatsoever. It's just loads of guys who are wrestling who are sort of on the same bus. Yeah, literally, that was that's their connection, isn't it? And they're, and they're rich and don't want to lose their money. Yeah, we met, we mentioned during the very special Nitro look back, during that Nitro week we published that with Finn Martin, we talked about how such a storyline nearly happened in 99. And it could have been very interesting. It would have been the veterans being the heels, like WCW President Ric Flair hanging on to power, you know, giving David Flair the United States title, working in cahoots with guys like Randy Savage. And then you've got the, the revolution and guys like that and Buff Bagwell fighting up. There was something about that. And obviously it never happened because most of the, the veterans said, nope, in a nope. Randy Savage voice. Uh but obviously, because that was hanging over the company is something they really should have done. And obviously, it's 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 no secret that some, a lot of the company's problems are because of the 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 big name veterans and their creative control contracts. It, it was still there, and I, I suppose when they decided they were going to reboot, they thought, well, let's revisit this and let's do it a year late, 
but not only did they do it a year late, they did it, as you said, the, the roles were reversed to a point it makes no sense because, you know, you don't really want to cheer on the, 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 the guys who are who are responsible for the problems in the first place. But that's the only way they were going to accept it is if they're the guys who not only are the good guys in the situation, but they actually get their... Um, they get their comeuppance before they've actually gone through anything particularly hard. You know, they got beat down a couple of times by by vehicles on nitro, and then suddenly they're winning the feuds. Uh, and the whole thing, yeah, but give it give it another month, two months, and the, and the whole thing's fallen apart. So the lo- the logic of it was never there. And I suppose you're right, Dean. We're always gonna tackle that overall thing at some point on this show, and yeah, might as well get out of the way now. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so match number four is uh, it's another title match. This is the United States title as um, Scott Steiner, accompanied by Medeja and Shakira, um, not that one, um, t- he defends against the newly named Captain Rection, um, who was the was Bill DeMott, the man formerly known as, as Hugh Morris. And because I know he made some notes on this and I don't want to steal his thunder, um, I will I will allow uh, our, our esteemed guest to tell us exactly what uh, Bill DeMott says on the microphone because it's well, I don't know if it's entirely <laughs> true. He's, so he comes out and he says, I no longer want to be called Hugh Morris. That name's embarrassing. It was a joke designed to bury me. I will now like to be called Hugh G. Rection. And I'm like, that's worse. How is that a better decision? Welcome to Vince Russo logic, ladies and gentlemen. Then Hugh Morris. That is oh. Russo writing in a nutshell. Has people come out, take a dump on whatever happened before, and then they say, I'm now going by it, and you find out that that thing's actually worse. That is, that is literally Russo's MO. Right? That, that is it right there. Oh, my days. It was so stupid, and and it's just it's also just sort of like base level humour, yeah, isn't it? It's like picking low hanging fruit and trying to get a laugh out of thirteen year olds, who FYI don't spend any money on on like tickets on work. You want to appeal to their parents who will who will spend the money, but the whole the whole misfits in action was just a mental stable, just utterly insane. Who do you have? You had um, Chavo Guerrero as Lieutenant Loco. That's the rule, the rate. Yeah, Cor- Corporal Cajun. Yeah. Van Hammer was named Private Stash. You get it because he's got a private stash. <laughs> right. He didn't like that because it meant he was lower ranking. You couldn't make this shit up. He got offended about the ranking order of oh, cause military he puns. Oh, my God. And, of course, you had um, Tyling Buck as Major Guns. Because, again, 2000s, different time. Different time. Different time. But doesn't he also allege, I'm sure he says that, that a huge erection is his real name or something as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, that, that, that's not your real name. Is um, it, and, it might be his real name, because that would explain a lot of why he's so angry and why he's so <laughs> way he did later on in in his career which if you don't know google that yeah that uh, that didn't uh, end well for him but i mean i i've encountered lots of people from all around the world in, in my my years on this planet yeah but i have i've never ever encountered anyone with the surname rection 
I'm going to type it into Facebook now and just see if anyone comes up. <laughs> oh, Facebook's got it. Have you seen, like, there, there's people who've got names that are, like, the exact same sound as Hell in a Cell and things like that. Yeah. And people message them and, and just really harass them with, with these jokes. So I'm yeah. sure there's something, Rection. I'm sure they've had a billion yeah, yeah, yeah. private messages. Yeah, Eugene Rection from Brownwood, Texas. Oh, please be a real person. <laughs> I've got a funny feeling he's just a WCW fan. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and also, oh, there goes. That's so disappointing. <laughs> um. <laughs> and also, going back to what we were saying about the opening match, Scott Stein now has not one but two women with him. Um, so, we see the fellow misfits in action sitting at ringside. Um, Steiner is on the offense, but each time he tries to get some momentum going, Rection makes a comeback, even when Steiner's freaks distract him. Um, he goes for um, Q. Um, I can't call him Q Boris. I'm going to I'll call him the captain. The captain goes for a moonsault, but the two girls pull him off, still not like that. And uh, he crotches himself on the top rope. Um, Steiner's back on top. He's so confident he's even doing press-ups in the ring and assaulting the poor ginger referee when he dares to only count to two on a pinfall attempt. Um, another two-count results in the ref temporarily fleeing the ring in terror to escape from Steiner. Um, Steiner's landing some impressive-looking suplexes on his 300-pound opponent, but then once again he goes outside to argue with fans at ringside. I mean, this this... This would have been a prime Steiner mental stage where he was coming out with a tiger and stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, that'd be a few months later. But yeah, he's he's evolving into that. You know, he'll start wearing the chainmail headwear soon enough. Yeah, and he's, yeah, he's going was, to the main event. It was it was getting to that point where it was just like Alexa, what does a breakdown look like? <laughs> the uh, the Alexa says the answer is Hulk Hogan in early editions of Monday Nitro. Yes, indeed. As we right? found out on the watch-alongs. Oh, it was glorious. Um, so a tombstone position is uh, reversed by the captain who lands a vicious-looking Steiner square driver of his own. Um, he follows up with a moonsault. Um, Steiner moves out of the way, but the captain's boot catches him accidentally right on the back of his head, which bounces off the canvas. It looks really nasty, but Steiner seems to be okay. He immediately locks on the Steiner recliner for the submission victory in 9 minutes 24 to retain the title. Post-match, the uh, MIA try and invade the ring, but they're held up by uh, security, which allows Booker T to run in and attack Steiner to uh, continue or set up that feud. Um, Adam, your thoughts on this one? This is what it had to be. It was, you know, it was what I thought I would get. It was, it was what I wanted. Um, I, everyone looks so young, don't they? I get really <laughs> freaked out by young Scott Steiner without the sort of like Game of Thrones headwear, and he, and even Becca T with his, his short hair. I was like, no, where where are your, where are your dreads book? And and oh, it was no, it was it was good. I have I have no complaints. With, with what happened bell to bell, but it's not your real name, Hugh. It's not your real name. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's also even weirder to look at like Scott Steiner 10 years prior to that, where he had a, a dark black mullet. And, and he was uh, pretending to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that... And also, any time I see Scott Steiner, I just start doing maths in my head. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's his legacy for me. <laughs> that yeah, or um, there's a there's a promo. I, I think uh, it must be from TNA where uh, he's backstage in the locker room with um with um Bully Ray, and he starts just wittering on and about his freaks, and and Bully Ray just interrupts him by shouting English. At him. <laughs> They actually, they actually had those two do uh, joint promos for several weeks in a row because they just had that great chemistry of just like semi-comedic. There was one where they're, they're both talking about how they hate Abyss because he's fat. And Bully Ray saying, yeah, I used to be fat, but I'm not anymore. Abyss is fat. you got to look at it. There's some brilliant ones. It's crazy crazy stuff but yeah as for this match i agree with you guys it's it's, it's what a host battle should be you got two two agile big men beating the tar out of each other i've got all the time in the world for that what i don't have the time in the world for is the um the huge erection stuff that you guys have already gone two-footed in on plenty so i won't add on that you you've said everything i want to say about it's stuffed but one thing you've given a free pass to dean is that when booker t makes the save afterwards it's not technically booker t is it is it G.I. Bro? It's G.I. Bro. Because Vince oh. Russo has decided to change him back to a silly old gimmick from his from his pre-WCW days. I think it was Global in Texas. Global, yeah. And because he, as, as a young wrestler who's not part of the Hill New Blood, similar to the Misfits in Action, because those guys are kind of watching each other's backs, you know, this fortnight... Um, he's decided that's good enough reason to make him go back to this old military gimmick, and unfortunately he'd have it for another few more. I think he was he was like this at the uh, at the next pay per view, the Great American Bash, fighting um, Sean Stasiak in one of the world's most boring no disqualification matches. So Booker has experience for that from Uncensored '96 at the very least, and in the month after that, Bash at the Beach, he'd be world champion because that's the sort of pace his fucking company moves at in this day and age. So yeah, that's a GI Bro running, and that's just cringeworthy. But from bell to bell, uh, fair play where it's due. This I enjoyed this match, and I'd have loved to have seen these two wrestle more because yeah. that's exactly what Scott Steiner should have been doing all through 2000. He had that belt-in match with Goldberg at Four Brawl, similar template, just went out there beat fuck out of each other and him and him and Hugh Morris did the same here great stuff I, I love Scott Steiner just unapologetic kind of brutish like, remember when he debuted in WWE Survivor Series give me a fucking mic <laughs> yeah absolutely just completely I don't think he forgot where he was I think he knew exactly where he was he oh, yeah. got so overdoing that and then it all got flushed away in that first match at the Royal Rumble <laughs> Oh well, God! He, yes, well, he, he had like droplet or something, and just yes. couldn't lift his left leg. And and he was also wrestling like Triple H during the Reign of Terror mm. as well. So, uh, but no, so Jimmy, Jimmy just fucking like is is incredible. But back, back to Jerry Bro, how how they did not get sued by Mattel, I've got no idea because that's like a really on the nose reference. Gi Bro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I suppose it just shows how few people are watching WCW at this point. They're thinking, yeah, right? They're they're losing sixty million that year. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no. What are we gonna sue them for? They've got nothing left. They got nothing. They'll just be paying legal fees at this point. Stop it! He's already dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, uh, um, yeah, that 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 I'm just remembering that match at the Royal Rumble now. But yeah, drop drop foot um, syndrome that he had. I mean, apparently he um he had to like tape his foot into like the, the sort of into a fused position, much like um Kerry Von Erich would be with his um prosthetic leg. And it, you know, he, yeah, he he had apparently whether it's true or not that he recovered, I don't know. But yeah, his his entire right foot was like dead pretty much so uh yeah a very uh unfortunate situation anyway let's move on match number five it is mike awesome versus chris canyon um and awesome kicks things off early with a huge plancher to the floor within the first minute of the match so this is really two um two younger uh newer no pun intended new blood of of wcw coming in um awesome is uh is representing um new blood but canyon is on side with dvp um canyon retaliates with a cannonball dive from the apron to the floor back in the ring awesome hits a high elevation top rope diving clothesline um and then a vicious chair shot across canyon's back they start brawling through the crowd uh, as the crowd chant ECW, which both Awesome and WCW themselves must have loved. Um, awesome goes to the top, but is cut off by Canyon. He crotches himself on the top. Canyon then lands a neck breaker from the top for a two count. Uh, awesome lands an Alabama slam with an amazing snap onto Canyon for a two count. A power bomb nearly lands Canyon on the back of his head, which looks particularly nasty. Uh, awesome then leaves the ring, removes the protective mats, um, but isn't able to, to make use of him in the end. But back in the ring, um, he manages to hit a huge release German suplex. Um, with both men on the rampway, the NWO Wolfpack music hits. Kevin Nash appears, starts brawling with Awesome. Then Kidman, Vampiro and Douglas all run in to help their fellow New Blood member. Flair and Sting come down to a huge pop, followed by R&B security. That's Russo and Bischoff security. Uh, as Bret Hart would say, it's a big schmoz and the uh, the match is thrown out. So, I mean... I'm, just a, an abrupt ending, but uh, before the, uh, the abrupt halt, what did you think of this match, Adam? Before the abrupt halt, this was an absolute banger. This was amazing. But both guys, really good. Canyon, tragically underutilised, because I think he's like one of the best wrestling brains in the company at that time. Yeah. Which is why he, he was the um, technical wrestling advisor on Ready to Rumble. Yes. Which they, they kept put, they kept putting that film over ad nauseum. Jesus. Clearly having having not seen it. And no, really good. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. But then they, they threw it out, which begs the question, how relaxed is too relaxed when it comes to the rules? <laughs> yes. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense, but then this well it's WCW, isn't it? Uh, but no, just a, a real waste of a good match, in my opinion, just to end it, end it like that, and at least have have someone go over. But that that was a because I, I I'm you watch wrestling enough where you become sort of immune to to certain things. But even on the Alabama Slammer and the Powerbomb, even I went oh, yeah. even I kind of winced a little bit on those two moves. Yeah, the Powerbomb especially. Because I thought it was going to land on his head. It was scary. Yeah, but luckily he didn't, and and it was all. I said, 
I was right to say it was all okay. It was not okay. It's February 2000. But no, no one got hurt. Indeed. Live to fight another day. Liam, what do you make of this one? Yeah, this is the perfect example of, of if, you, if you're being forced to endure this sort of uh, WCW era because you're daft enough to start up a WCW podcast and let other people <laughs> pick which shows we cover, then the best thing you can do is to try and just shut out all the flawed logic and just appreciate what the wrestlers are doing in the ring sometimes. And this is a great example of that. This is exactly what WCW did have in its locker back when everything was was going to shit. They had some good wrestlers uh, who were believable for a very short period of time. You know, this this is around when Mike Awesome hadn't yet lost his luster as the career killer, you know, he's hitting these big mm. moves. He's throwing himself at Canyon. He's trying to get the exposed concrete involved because he doesn't just want to beat him. He wants to cripple him. And the whole thing was working. You're right, guys. They should have just had all some win here because Canyon wouldn't have been damaged by the loss. As it turned out, they'd soon go a different direction with him anyway because they'd run out of other people they could have turned on Diamond Dallas Page. So he'd be joining the list like at the very next fucking page pay-per-view so you might as well have him lose to Mike Awesome here but that's that's where the place is at I mean it's just all over the shop and yeah just sit back and watch the wrestling and as soon as you see people run down switch it off because that's the best you're going to get out of it okay we then see a video package about Miss Elizabeth with uh, Russo waving a WCW contract saying that he owns her um, it makes for very uncomfortable viewing, partly because Russo is acting like an abusive spouse and partly because Elizabeth has a complete lack of any acting ability, as we know from our watch-alongs, Liam. Mm. Um, we go straight into match number six, which is Lex Luger, the total package versus Buff Bagwell. These two seem to, to have a very they just seem to have a long period of time where they were always working with each other, either against each other or, or as a tag team. Is that my imagination? No, you're right. It's absolutely consistent. They they managed to, to feud during the NWO days, post that, right here, and obviously they'd end up as, as totally buff at the end of the, the WCW era. Yes, of course. Totally buff. How did I forget? Um, so Luger comes out to the total package music that still haunts me because it reminds me of that god-awful WCW house show in London a few months earlier. Um, Bagwell dominates the opening minutes as the commentators speculate that Luger is missing Elizabeth's presence at ringside. But then Luger takes charge as the match spills to the outside. Bagwell intercepts Luger as he returns to the ring and he, he is then on the offense once more. It's it's sort of unspectacular, but passable. Um, we then see a backstage clip where Elizabeth ambushes Russo from behind and knocks him off his chair and nails him with a baseball bat. She then heads to ringside and ends up in the ring with Bagwell in possession of the bat. Um, Bagwell then climbs to the top rope, um, but Liz whacks him with the bat that he's since put down um, and actually has an expression on her face as she's doing it, which allows Luger to put Bagwell in the torture act for the win in 9 minutes 30 seconds. Uh, Luger and Liz embrace in the ring, but they're interrupted by, I think he's making his debut here, Chuck Palumbo from the power plant, who attacks Luger. He's wearing the same trunks and knee pads as Luger and puts Luger in the torture rack, 
while Bagwell holds Elizabeth and makes her watch what's happening, and Bagwell then takes Liz to the back. So I'm I'm kind of presuming here that this is similar to with what we we saw already with with um, Sean Stasiak as like the new next generation Mr. Perfect that yeah. they're pushing Chuck Palumbo as the next generation Lex Luger. Exactly, and then when both of those concepts fell flat on their face within a matter of weeks, they'd be teaming up as the perfect event and win the tag titles as well. Indeed, yes. Um, Adam, your thoughts on this one? So, I have listed all the crimes that happened in this segment, the match, and the aftermath. Oh, fantastic. Here, here we go. I own you. Nope, that's called modern-day slavery, Vince So That is highly, highly illegal. Don't do it. Um, Liz hitting Vince Russo with a baseball bat backstage. That's common assault. I'll allow that one. And then Chuck Belongo coming out at the end, dressed as a total package. That is a violation of copyright law and gimmick infringement. Three crimes in one match. That wasn't very good. And once again, I think it's important we point out the legal reasons the year 2000 was a very different time. Very different time. Yeah, you, you have reminded me there, Adam. That I've, I've long said that there would be room, and I don't quite know how it would work, but there would be room in wrestling for a heel gimmick of someone um, from, like, company HR, where you know, you're not allowed to do various things that are staples of wrestling because they break, like, employment law, you know. Such, well, such as common assault that you saw there. But, yeah, but because they, they had a go in like right to censor. But I want something that's sort of like a really satirical version of, of right to censor, kind of almost verging on on comedy, where someone just goes around and like just constantly breaks the fourth wall and gets and gets heat for doing it. Was well, that guy that took like loads of signs to WWF shows, saying, "Oh yeah, WWF equals porn and, and stuff." So, like crazy Christian guy. Yeah, that, Dust, Dustin that, Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his name, Justin Rhodes. Oh, that's going to get me in trouble. Jesus. Um. <laughs> Is it, no, no one else really recognised him at the time. He, he was nothing like what we know. Considering the man's done everything from a rugged Texan to, to gold dust, to, to render him irrecognisable there, it takes some doing. Because he transcends any, anything he does, usually. He shines in it. And yet that whole thing, you're right, Adam, it was... It was such a joke. It's, it's easy to forget that he had anything to do with it. I, I had. We, we, we also have kidnapping. We can add that to the list of <laughs> yeah. crimes that happened here. And was it just me, or could could Palumbo not get the total package up in the torch rack on his own? Yeah, no, how to, help by, yeah. how to be helped by Buff Bagwell? Yeah, who is is holding Elizabeth with the exact same amount of force you would hold a newborn puppy while she watches trying to act dis- dismayed but isn't really that bothered if you look at her actual posture. Yeah, we've been watching her trying to be a heel during our Nitro watch-alongs. We're in early 1996 and yeah, she re- woman basically has to do the work of two valets there. A oh, woman was just fantastic. Yeah. Nancy Sullivan, absolutely tremendous. She scene. loved it. She she had the passion of two valets. She, yes. Oh mate. She was she was absolutely amazing, Nancy. Yeah, it's as the and the, the more we're watching these these nitro watch alongs, the more we're doing them. Each week we're seeing her and 
and it may, really makes you appreciate what how good she was and just the little things she would do. It is it is absolutely fantastic. She's always good value to watch. Um, okay, so Mean Gene is then backstage with Shane Douglas, who insists on being called the franchise, um, and he basically does a censored, family-friendly version of his old Angie Flair promos from ECW. Um, so match seven is Shane Douglas v. Ric Flair, and this is the match that ECW fans thought they'd never see. Unfortunately for them, it took Douglas leaving the dying promotion for it to happen, um, as seven years of frustration, as the commentators say, is unleashed. Um, it always seemed like an odd alleged rivalry to me because the two were never rem- remotely on the same level. Um, Flair comes out in street clothes because this was the era where he wasn't wrestling in trunks and boots. Um, he calls Douglas a dipshit and says he's going to kick his ECW ass. Um, Shivani points out that it's in this city, Kansas City, that Flair won his first world title. Um it's also worth noting that Flair is a millionaire's club, while Douglas is new blood, despite being 35 and having debuted in 1982. Um, but Flair's the clear babyface here. And as, as we said, the, the, the stable, there wasn't one babyface stable and one heel stable. Um, it's a back, back and forth match, plenty of intensity. The crowd are very much into it. Um, at one point, Douglas wraps a chain around his fist and nails Flair with it. Flair goes down hard. Both men land low blow blows on each other. Um, in fact, Flair squarely kicks Douglas in the balls right in front of the ref, but I guess relaxed rules means the referee lets it slide. Um, the commentators are doing a great job putting over the rivalry between them. Um, the end of the match comes when Flair is clamping on the figure four leg lock. Bagwell runs down to ringside with the ref distracted. A man in a black trench coat and sing mask and wig hits Flair from behind with a baseball bat. Douglas wraps him up in the small package for the win in 8 minutes 46. The commentators say they know it's Russo behind the mask. Flair grabs the mic, tells the alleged Russo he wants five minutes in the ring with him. Um, Luger then comes down to ringside, makes the guy get in the ring. Then, surprise, surprise, the real Vince Russo comes down to the ramp, comes down the ramp, and the masked guy hits Flair with a glass model of the Statue of Liberty. I swear, I'm not making any of this up. He unmasks to reveal that it's David Flair attacking his own father. Russo tells the officials to start the clock, and this five-minute period begins. Uh, but then the Wolfpack music hits. Kevin Nash ambles down the ramp, desperately trying not to tear his quad in the process, probably. Um, Nash attacks Russo and is about to powerbomb him when Daphne comes in and low blows him. The five-minute clock suddenly just stops out of nowhere for no reason. Nash and Flair are left lying in the ring. I'm left lying on my sofa with a headache. Adam, did you manage to get through this one? What? The bloody hell was all this. <laughs> this was just uh it's like it's like too many cooks spoil spoil the broth. This was like a, a wrestling equivalent of you know when when a child first learns to dress itself and it comes downstairs in the morning looking like a Monet painting and goes, I'm ready and you're like, No, you're fucking not ready. That, that, that's what this was. <laughs> Or, uh, or or um, Chandler wearing all of Jerry's clothes in Friends. Yeah, that's the wrestling equivalent of, of this. The child that's just learned how to book a wrestling show. <laughs> 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 
yeah, do you know what? I really like that analogy. And the main reason is, is if you think of that situation where a kid does come down hideously dressed and the parent, yeah, the parent goes, oh, no, you know, frog marches them back up the stairs, gets them dressed properly, right? Uh, in this situation... Has your daughter hit that stage yet? Not yet. But the reason oh. I want to further this analogy is because in this situation, if you think of Russo's time at WWE when he actually cultivated a positive reputation and the, some of the main reasons for that being such as uh, the, the show that really got Adam into wrestling being uh, Survivor Series, Deadly Game. People call that, you know, great Russo writing. It turns out the whole time he had the parents in Vince McMahon and the other writers to march him up the stairs and make him get dressed properly. And then he went to WCW and it was, he was allowed to leave the house in his own choices of clothes. And that's where things got to be. And, that, and that's why I really like that analogy. Um, I want to go into defense of this a little bit before I really rip it to shreds. The thing I want to defend first and foremost is Flair and Douglas here. They've kind of shown their what what qualities they really do have as performers in this. Because you, you're right. Uh, this, this feud is kind of being done like a lot of Russo things. It's being played to the... The the two percent audience that know about all these you know these these behind the scenes feuds and all that and uh, they're a bit more obvious now with social media but back then it really was a, a small pocket of the fan base that knew that Shane Douglas and Ric Flair didn't like each other etc etc yeah um, but fortunately two things helped them really get some good heat here one is just how good they are when when they talk people listen. Uh, Douglas cuts good promos. He convinces you that he hates Flair, mostly because he partly does. Uh, and he knows how to convey it on the mic. Flair is just, as we know, he's, he's transcendent. He's golden on the mic. So in the in what it's only been like a month since this whole thing started with the uh with, with that reboot nitro and spring stampede but every week to their credit flair and douglas were were putting forth a real rivalry a real program real bankable hatred and that translated in the reactions they were getting when they're trading fists the other thing that done them a little bit of a favor is as it turns out that any remaining loyal wcw viewers and at this stage that's pretty much the only people who are watching um will remember that in that aforementioned failed attempt to get an old versus new storyline in 99 the closest we got to a real palpable version of it was when Benoit and Malenko left the Horseman because Flair was like not treating them properly and only helping himself and his mates. And they formed a faction called the Revolution. Shane Douglas yep. showed up, took leadership of the group with Malenko and Saturn and uh, Benoit, and he said he wanted to help them get rid of the cancer in WCW, Ric Flair. So there'd been work put in even though it didn't really go anywhere, he had been on TV for a number of weeks and the, and the rival was there and he was allowed to revisit it when the new Blood Millionaires Club thing. So this match had those two things going in its favour and that's why they had heat. That's why they had a real a real thing here. But then as you guys have mentioned, the, the whole overbooked mess at the beginning. I just want to clarify, the whole stipulation of this match was you've got Flair versus Douglas, uh, but 
if Russo gets involved, then no matter what the result, apparently, if Russo gets involved, he has to fight Ric Flair for five minutes. Now, as you know, Dean, this is a, a common crutch in wrestling booking to, yep. to, to threaten a cowardly manager into the threat of actually having to face the wrestler. He doesn't want that. The wrestler who's been shafted constantly by this manager wants it. The fans want it. So it creates that suspense. But they're having Vince Russo in the build-up to this. Vince Russo is saying, I want to fight Ric Flair. I'm going to get that five minutes. You just don't know how I'm going to interfere. And it completely ruins the concept. And commentary are hammering that home. They're saying Russo's promised to interfere. He wants the five minutes. So why the fuck are we doing it? Why don't we just book that as the match? You know? Uh, and then you add to the fact that Russo has just been hit by a baseball bat to the head or wherever it was. Um, right at the end of the last match... And he's coming out as he's fresh as a daisy because he's so tough and manly. And you can see why this company was going off a cliff. Well, not only that, but the fact that so much of the booking is centred around that a, a bloke, bloke, yeah, a bloke who isn't a wrestler. Mm. It's just all it's just all a joke at this stage, and this exemplifies it. And it just makes it more tragic that Douglas and Flair, if allowed to do things the old-fashioned way. Yeah, that's one hell of an upper mid-card programme. Yeah, because, I mean, even you know, whether there is a real rivalry there or, or or what, they seem to be working together absolutely fine. You know, they're both professionals. They, yeah. they're, they're putting a good match together. And you were right, Dean. There, is a, there was a golfing class. Flair is Flair, and Douglas was still mid-card. But with their mic work and the fact that Flair does cooperate with absolutely anyone between the ropes, uh, you, you'd have no doubt if they were left to their own expertise and their own devices, they'd have made it work, and it would have elevated Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> Totally, Rick, Rick Flair is like the run full of stilts again in, in this whole thing, just spinning straw into gold and everything else is just highly damaging. And and I don't know if, if anyone from Retribution is, is listening to this podcast, but if you are, go and watch this segment, That's How You Destroy a Wrestling Company. They've already, they've already made that joke. They savaged Eric Bischoff when he dumped on the gimmick. They said, oh, yeah, you're just like us. We want to ruin a massive multi-million dollar yeah. company. Oh, oh, Absolutely sad. They're brilliant on social media. It might just save the entire... Because if, if, if live crowds ever get back in, they're going to be reading social media. They're going to love these guys. They're going to turn them babyface. Yeah, because they, they, they're basically trying to explain the unexplainable and it, do you know it does make me wonder what what would the world have been like or what would WCW been like if they had Twitter at this point in time and you're trying to explain some of these angles it's not even worth contemplating you're, you're, oh, it's, it's too much of a mindfuck it really is oh, I mean, you'd, you'd have Russo tweeting his kind of work shoot is it real is it not tweets you'd have You'd have other people trying to trying to make make these storylines make sense. You'd have Hulk Hogan lying through his teeth. It, it would. It would be insane, and it would be like Kevin Nash and Rey Mysterio in an ACL on a pole match, and oh, the the whole thing would just be unreal. Even Chris Nolan would look at it and think, "I don't fucking get it." <laughs> 
it would be carnage. Okay, let's move on. Match number eight, Vampiro versus Sting. Um, this rivalry began at the last WCW pay-per-view, Spring Stampede 2000, which, as we said, we reviewed with Priscilla, Queen of the Ring, back in episode 57. Um, they've somehow managed to get a real-life crow purchased on the entranceway for Sting's entrance. I've got no idea how they managed to do that, unless, of course, they went full Monty Python and nailed it to the rig. Um, the match starts with the two of them brawling on the entrance ramp. Did I mention how much I love an entrance ramp? Really do. Um, Sting is completely dominating the match for the first five minutes or so until yet another low blow turns the tide in Vampiro's favour. He attacks Sting with a lead pipe and the match then moves again up to the entrance ramp. Vampiro puts Sting in the corner, climbs the ropes to lay in some punches, but Sting nails him with, you've guessed it, a low blow and a powerbomb out of the corner. He then hits Vampiro several times with the lead pipe, followed by a Stinger splash and a second one with the pipe in his hand. A pair of scorpion death drops get Sting the victory um, in an official time of 6.49, although there was a lot of action before the bell even rang. Sting then returns to the ring to lay Vampire out with another uh, lead pipe shot. And and that's your lot. What, what do you think of this one, Adam? 15-year-old me would have loved the entire Sting Vampiro storyline. However, 35-year-old me was not a fan of this particular part of it. And I think, again, Vampire was someone who I really liked, who I think I just misused greatly on several occasions. At one point, he was with the insane clown posse. He was, if I, yes. If I remember correctly. Which is not how you handle that, that kind of character that you're trying to push. But again, you're with Sting. You're in, you're in a, he's a real safe set of hands in the ring, can work with anyone. Um, yeah, was, this was before. The next pay-per-view, I believe, was where they had the Human Torch match. Yep. Uh, yep. Oh, 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 there you go. It was indeed. Uh, it was, oh, I can't wait to cover that pay-per-view. <clears throat> yeah, where they're on top of the Titan and then Sting catches on fire. The camera cuts. And then after that, Sting appears to shrink about a foot, lose a bit of muscle mass, and fall <laughs> off the top of the Titan. Fire will do that to you, Adam. That, that, that's what I hear. That's what I hear. And I'm already five foot six, so, so I don't play with fire. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, it was, it was good. It wasn't... But it's just come after so much overbooked nonsense that I'm really struggling to see the wood through the trees at this point. And we've got a lot more to come as well. I really like the energy of Sting in this. I know so in the grand scheme of things, it was a bit of a nothing match, but he was motivated here and he was energetic and the crowd picked up on it. Obviously, it's one of the featured feuds as well, but the alarming thing is, is, is Sting has quite handily done away with the guy he started feuding with only a month ago. And, you know, what else can you really do after? I know technically Vampiro won uh, their their match at the following pay per view, but you know he's he's basically done and dusted him here. It's, and considering it's Vampiro who needs something out of this to get up to Sting's level, whereas Sting will be Sting no matter what happens. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a really silly way to go. But 
ever since then we, we've kind of learned like Vampiro has always gone record and said that Sting could not stand him. He always saw the Vampiro showing up in white makeup. He saw him as like an imposter, and he wasn't happy that someone was kind of like diminishing the effect of the of the Crow gimmick. And you can't really take much of what Vampiro says at face value, given some of the lies he's been caught out in. But considering how this feud went, he's <laughs> Sting did look particularly motivated to give Vampiro a good on-screen trouncing. So maybe he was up for the the scenario of, of making it abundantly clear who the star was and who who wasn't but as a huge sting fan as someone who you know it was it was cool watching the vampiro documentary now in the coffin check that out if you haven't already i've reviewed it for the indie corner it's been given a streaming release i believe on several platforms check it out if you can it's it's fascinating stuff but yeah i'm not i'm not particularly a, a fan of vampiro and i'm a big sting fan so i was happy to see it go this way but the storytelling is it makes no sense They've, kind of wrapped it up here mm. yeah we had the yeah i just uh just saw the human torch match so we, we'll get around to great american bash yeah er, everything we say about this pay-per-view just remember great american bash takes everything and takes it up a notch in the insanity levels so this yeah. pay-per-view is nothing compared to jb 2000 we've still got that to come christ on a bike um <laughs> We, we, there will come a time when we get we cover every pay-per-view, won't there? And, and that means we have to cover this. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Oh, man. My plan for Clash of the Champions will have to be put on ice. Um, okay, Mike today's backstage with uh, DDP and a very nervous David Arquette. DDP tells him to do what he te- says, basically, do what I tell you to do. Stay out of Jarrett's way. Fend off anyone trying to interfere in the match. Um, yeah, you know how cage matches are meant to stop any interference. Um, we then return to Tanae with um, Billy Kidman and Eric Bischoff in a referee shirt because he is the special guest referee for this next match, which is Billy Kidman, uh, accompanied by Tory Wilson, versus <clears throat> versus Hulk Hogan, who is accompanied by his nephew, Horace Hogan. Um, Bischoff comes out with Kimberly, who we're told is serving DDP with divorce papers currently. So both Hogan and Horace are wearing jackets with F-U-N-B written on the back. So it's um, 26-year-old Kidman versus 47-year-old Hogan, who debuted when Kidman was age three. Um, First thing you notice is the enormous size difference between these two. Um, the first two moves are both botched. They really seem to be struggling to work together. Um, Hogan brings a chair into the ring, press slams Kidman on top of it. Kidman actually lands a Hurricane Rana on Hogan to counter a powerbomb attempt. Um, later on, Hogan starts whipping Kidman with uh, his weightlifting belt before Bischoff takes it off him, but then he's obviously happy for Kidman to use it against Hogan. Hogan then turns the tide with a huge hip toss on Kidman, which sends him over the top rope to the floor. He throws Kidman back in, makes a cover, but Bischoff simply refuses to count the pinfall attempts as the crowd chant arsehole at him. Um, He tells Hogan, I don't have to count, which is literally his job. Um, Hogan then um, hulks up. He lands a big boot on Kidman. Bischoff blocks Hogan's path for the leg drop, so Hogan punches Bischoff. Bischoff returns with a chair, but Hogan grabs it and nails both Kidman and Bischoff with it before getting a pair of tables from under the ring, which is very surreal to see, it has to be said. Um, 
Hogan manages to break the table leg off while setting it up. For fuck's sake, Hulk, is my note there. Um, Hogan then goes to powerbomb Bischoff through the table, but Kidman intercepts with a chair shot. A groggy Bischoff makes a groggy count, but Hogan kicks out. Um, Hogan then puts Bischoff through the table. Hogan, who's now bleeding, then gets a third table, which he struggles to get into the ring, um, keeps getting the leg caught between the uh, middle and the top, the bottom rope. Um, Kidman hits another low blow as the crowd solidly chant for Hogan. He uh, lays Hogan on the table, goes to splash him off the top, but Hogan moves and Kidman crashes through the table. Hogan then covers him. Uh, Horace grabs the unconscious Bischoff's arm and counts the three with it for the win in 13-31 of what, was just what I have described here as an absolute clusterfuck. Um, Adam, did uh, did you think uh, any any more charitably of this one? My notes are remarkably similar. <laughs> because I, I've written, this was an overbook clusterfuck. Phil Red botches that ran five minutes longer than it should have done, which makes it one of Hulk Hogan's top five matches in WCW. <laughs> but it is it's just the i mean i suppose they had to do all that because the size difference meant that you know you had, you had to use chairs and you had to use weapons and have a referee cheating to make it look vaguely even i suppose but if you can't make it look even just don't do it mm. like if you, if you have to use there's such a thing as too much in terms of like smoke and mirrors and what have you and this was the very very definition of that, and uh, you know, to I'm not, and this isn't a, a slate on, on 2020 Billy Kidman. 2000 Billy Kidman has no business being in a ring with Hulk Hogan, none whatsoever. Mm. It, it's well, the, the those botches at the start are just the the style clash, I suppose, where Hogan didn't really know what he's working with, with with the moves that Kidman's trying to land. No, and he's also not bumping very much at this point in his career in general. Anytime you see a Hulk Hogan match in like the year 2000, um, you can play the Hulk Hogan bump challenge and just count how many times he bumped. It's, it's not a lot. In, in his like WrestleMania 18 match with The Rock, I think he bumps four times the mm. entire match. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the most famous matches ever. It goes to show how smart the guy is, I suppose. But I mean, Liam, how did this whole remind us? How did this whole Kidman Hogan feud come about? Because they they fight again at the Great American Bash. Yeah, and they were obviously they started the feud because they, they interacted at Spring Stampede, where again Hogan trumps Kidman and cost him his match. Um, this was one of the main feuds at the start of the New Blood Millionaires Club. And, yeah, I was figuring I was going to have to explain the background to it anyway because it really doesn't make any sense otherwise. But during that pre-Russo-Bischoff era, when uh, Russo first screwed up and got fired and uh, or sent home, I should say, basically told he weren't going to be running the company anymore and he went home. Uh, and I had Kevin Sullivan that do like three months of really turgid stuff with Hogan back on top and stuff and team package and what have you. During this period there was a bit of unrest that that people were saying like you know you've just scared the radicals off there's guys like 
Booker T and Billy Kidman, you should be getting a chance. And I think so, the, the Billy Kidman deal in early 2000 was that he was going to be one of the guys who left with the Radicals, and he changed his tune because they promised him a, 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 a like a, a push, a, like a more enhanced. And it, uh, the the thing that was put towards him was a run with the United States title, which you know, with his with his popularity from his cruiserweight work, and you know, he's got Tory part of the package. He's been doing some stuff with the filthy animals and all that, there was enough there, yeah, you could absolutely bump him up to US champion. You see, it's a logical move up for him. Uh, and that didn't even happen. So he got he got sold a dummy there. And in all this frustration, you know how things get exaggerated a little bit and people say, oh, you know, the, the Kidmans and the Booker T's deserve to be so much more. And during this discontent at his latest egomaniacal run on top, scaring off all the viewers, Hulk Hogan was on one of his buddies' radio shows, I believe, and responded to someone bringing it up by saying that people like Billy Kidman could not headline a flea market. And there's a certain element of truth, you know, Billy Kidman, as, as Adam touched upon, he's never going to be the guy who, who, whose name is on the marquee, but he absolutely should be given more of a boosty role. We're talking mid, upper mid, decent stuff, can absolutely feud with some, with some named guys, interact with those, much in how we said in those early nitros, it was good to see things like Sting and Dean Malenko and Ric Flair and Eddie Guerrero, mm. I never see that integration. So... They use that again. They use that basis. So that, uh, this one thing that like a fraction of the fan base knows about. They use that as a as a jumping off point for an actual main feud on the show. And while you guys say they should never fight each other, I think yeah, you know, someone like me, if I was ever in that position, I'd see Hogan versus Kidman as a challenge to make it work because I think it can be done. I mean, you think about the the, the, the shortcuts they use here. Back in the day, if you've got a bigger bow face and a small hill, you'd use something like a bad leg. It was pretty simple, wasn't it? You could use something like that. But um, it's, it is a fascinating clash in the worlds, and they really didn't put much in that. Instead, what we got was just this attempt by Hogan to be the new Stone Cold Steve Austin, because that's what this is. He's, he's being referred to as Terry Belair half the time, another yeah. trope. He's doing the F you, you blood because he's such a rebel in the casual clothes. He's desperate, much like midlife crisis Hogan in the Nitro era, would desperately try to latch on to what was cool at the time and pretend that he was one of the, one of the cool kids. Um, here he is again doing that. Uh, and this is this is Stone Cold template mag. You think of like that classic he had with Mick Foley over the edge, where the you know Vince McMahon was the referee and they and they make his limp hand count the fall. They're ripping off all that stuff. I mean, it's nowhere near as entertaining. It's just depressing. It, it is, and, and even even Hogan's music in WCW, that American-made thing. Oh my, that is just so such a pain imitation. It was an imitation, but I thought it was catchy. But then it has been established, I've, I've said many times, I've always had a soft spot for WCW shameless rip-off entrance. So that's well, we, my cross to bear. Well, we also had um, a rip-off of Perfect Strangers for Shane Douglas, which was his ECW music. Yep, and I love it if guys like Edith Skipper having a rip-off of DMX and stuff like that. They should all be rip-off themes. <laughs> DDP is the, the holy, holy grail of rip-off themes. That was awesome. But we don't get it on the network, do we? They they overdub it. I kind I kind of like the WWE Network's dub of DDP's music as well, compared to some of the atrocities they dub over some 
of the themes. I thought DDP got away with it because at least it sounds a little bit like what he had. Very true, yeah. Um, okay, so we then see uh, Russo driving off into the night with Miss Elizabeth in tow. So um, going back to what you said earlier, Adam, we've basically just witnessed an abduction live on pay-per-view. Um, we then see a video montage looking over events that led to, up to this ready-to-rumble triple cage match. Um, and then Mean Gene interviews Jeff Jarrett, who wants his title back. So yes, what better way to promote a shit film than uh, by naming a cage match after it. And it is the Ready to Rumble triple cage match for the WCW world title, Jeff Jarrett, Michael, uh, Jeff Jarrett, say, v Diamond Dallas Page, v David Arquette. And never before has Michael Buffer's catchphrase of let's get ready to rumble be more appropriate. Um, now, un- unusual for WCW, they do actually explain the rules. And Shivani explains you have to climb the ladder from cage one to get up to the second cage, uh, which is the hardcore cage, which I'm presuming is full of weapons as opposed to being something that's part of a specialist club in Amsterdam. Um, then you have to climb that ladder to go up to the third cage, which is the guitar cage, presumably full of Jarrett's favorite weapons, guitars and then retrieve the world title belt, which is hanging above the third cage, something like 42 feet up in the air. Um, just seeing the on-screen caption of David Arquette, world heavyweight champion, makes me indescribably sad. Nothing against the bloke himself, but it just should never have happened. Um, Arquette's dressed in a red flame design outfit with trousers and a matching cape. Um, and, and you know what? It made me realize there's just not enough capes in wrestling. We should bring it him back. Really isn't, is it? I mean, back in the days of British wrestling, you had you had Pat Roach, and you had um, big uh, mighty John Quinn from Canada who who came over, and I can't think of many other people who had capes. They look tremendous in the wrestling environment. Well, it's it's more pageantry, isn't it? Yes, it adds to the spectacle of the whole thing, and I think people. Some people who don't know the old school just think it's a little bit hokey. And then they'll probably quote Edna Moore from The Incredibles and just go, nutcase. But no, like when, when Neville debuted um, on, on the main roster, he came down with like a cape and stuff. He looked awesome. That was like a really good entrance. It was like the Hurricane used to put his cape on to do a crossbody just in, in the middle of a match. And people like pop like a mother hubbard for it. So no, I'm 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 a huge advocate of capes in wrestling. I think they're great. There you go, young wrestlers. When the when the wrestling scene comes back, get a cape. Um. So um, what happens in this uh, in this cage match? Then well, uh, some of the um highlights include DDP slams Jarrett to the canvas. He instructs Arquette to splash him off the top, which he tries for arm, but Jarrett moves. Um, the match moves to ringside in the area between the ring and the perimeter of the cage, similar to a Hell in the Cell. Um, it's very back and forth between Jarrett and DDP. Arquette is taking a few bumps after being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But in, in story, in reality, he's actually doing very well to be where he needs to be. Um, DDP sets up a ladder to try and climb to the second cage, but Jarrett, who's now bleeding, cuts him off. Jarrett then tries to climb the ladder, but gets powerbombed off of it by DDP. Um, Jarrett climbs again, but gets knocked off over the top rope onto the ramp. This allows DDP to climb up into the second cage. Um, 
Jarrett swiftly follows him. He smashes DDP over the head with a chair, which cuts DDP open, and uh, he escapes from the second cage through the door. Jarrett then tries to climb up to the third cage, but DDP also makes it out of the door and intercepts him. We see uh, David Arquette is still on ground level, looking up nervously at the action happening above his head. Page runs Jarrett into the second cage, and the entire panel collapses and they are perilously close to falling off the entire uh, contraption. DDP then tries to set up a table, but it's impossible to set up properly because of the chicken wire that they're using as a base. They somehow managed to go through it, however, so we'll credit to them. They're now fighting outside of Cage 2 on the perimeter of Cage 1, very tentatively, like a scaffold match. Arquette then climbs up into the second cage, sneaks past them into the third cage, um, then Mike Awesome climbs up and interferes because uh, obviously 150 pound David Arquette was always going to be able to stop the six foot six, 300 pound Mike Awesome from doing whatever the fuck he wants to do in the first place. Anyway, um, Arquette has climbed to the top of the third cages within touching distance of retaining his title, but isn't interested in doing that. Madden presumes that Arquette's guarding the belt from Jarrett in case he gets there before DDP. Jarrett gets punched, holds onto one of the supports hanging from the ceiling to stop him from falling. He then enters the third cage. He smashes the guitar against the cage wall after missing DDP. DDP then does the same. Um, he hands a guitar to Arquette, which Madden says is a great strategy as a guitar over the head would be a great equalizer against the size and strength difference. Jarrett and Page then climb opposite sides of the cage. Guitar uh, Jarrett with a guitar in his hand. For the second pay-per-view main event in a row, we have a Russo swerve as Arquette smashes his guitar over Page, not Jarrett. Jarrett then hits his guitar over Page for good measure, grabs the world title belt to win the match and become your new WCW World Heavyweight Champion in 15 minutes and 29 seconds. Awesome then climbs to the top of the cage to attack DDP some more, but Canyon appears out of nowhere to come to his rescue. Awesome then throws Canyon from the top of the first cage onto the entranceway as Shivani says he's broken his back and Madden just keeps saying Jesus over and over. One final stunt to end a stunt show of a pay-per-view. Uh, Adam, what was your impression of the main event of this ma- this show? I loved it from start to finish. From Tony Schiavone reading the rules, letting us all know exactly how many drugs are too many drugs. And from the end when Mike Orson threw a man off a cage the way Terry Funk throws chairs on top of <laughs> AstroTurf. It was it was so good. I, I would go to bat for this match all all day long. I reckon it was ahead of its time. I reckon if they pitched it now and just dialed back a little bit on some of the excess, it would probably get over ra- rather nicely. And yeah, this is the main reason why I chose this pay per view because it is my guilty pleasure. I love it so much. I mean, I have to say the only the only other triple cage match that we have seen before in WCW. I know there were a few others back in the early, in the late eighties, but obviously your immediate thought goes to uncensored, uh, the, the, the cage match there, which obviously nothing could be as bad. And this was, I mean, this was, I suppose, pretty much a one-on-one as opposed to a two on eight. So it made a lot more, it made a lot more sense. But I mean, Liam, were you a big fan of this one? Well, 
the first thing, when you compare to the Doomsday Cage, the first thing you have to say is aesthetically, this it this is much much better. It yes. Goes, it goes over the ring, whereas the Doomsday Cage was like at the back of the arena, which you know already makes it hard to see things. And obviously, we we commented during when we looked back at that on a very early episode of because those we talked about how. You know, they were struggling to walk across it, and it was looking unsafe in certain places. And I think in the in the National Wrestling Alliance Jim Crockett days, there was a really convoluted triple cage involving time trapdoors and that with the Road Warriors and Kevin Sullivan's cronies were involved. I can't remember exactly how it went, but that would that was a mess as well. That match it didn't really work um, with this triple cage. So. For those who haven't seen any of this, is a picture of the first cage is the hell in the cell and the way it surrounds the ring. Yeah. And it's got like a maybe like a regular sized steel cage on top. And as as Dean said, they 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 use a ladder in the ring so they can climb up and reach a trapdoor and pull themselves up into the second cage. Uh, and then from from there uh, they're, they're looking for a while. I, th- I, th- I think in the initial design is in the weapons cage, which is the second cage. There's a there's a rope ladder to bring you up another trapdoor into the third cage, uh, and then you go out of a door in that mini cage to try and climb on top of the mini cage and grab the belt. So you're looking like an assault course, and for two wrestlers, like the the concept of a ladder match itself, for two wrestlers to try and fight each other and and, and get to there first, so it makes a a, a good aesthetic like that. Uh, they did use it one more time, although it was a, a hideous mess, because Russo tried to book a War Games match with this with this triple cage on a nitro, as you do. It was a it was a team versus team match for Kevin Nash's world title, big as you do, and one of the entrants on the babyface team was allowed to be a tag team in Chronic, because as you do, and the idea was is you not only did you go up to get the belt, you actually had to bring it all the way back down and walk out the door. So all sorts of swerves and chaos happened. It was just a mess. Whereas with this, even though it's another tedious fucking swerve at the end, DDP was turned on three straight pay-per-views in this Russo-Bishop era. We covered Spring Stampede 2000. Kimberly turns and him, Jarrett wins yep. the title. Uh, here, David Arquette does it. Uh, Jarrett regains the title. And then because of what Awesome did to Canyon, uh, DDP takes on Awesome in an ambulance match and Canyon turns on him and helps Mike Awesome because WCW. Uh, uh, but apart from that, Swerve, you know, the, the work of Paige and Jerry beginning, you, you know these two can wrestle. They're doing nice spots with a ladder. They're, you know, you're getting big moves and all that. They're doing the good stuff. And the whole thing, there's a good narrative going through it. It's, it's, it's decent enough stuff. Swerve notwithstanding, yeah. Ju- I would really love to, and no one is ever going to, but I've long championed for for this triple cage. It could easily be used by someone. And uh, because I mentioned it a few times, the sad is I've done this whole alternative reality series where if if WCW had survived and Fusion had uh, bought them and they managed to carry on running, I did actually because as I said, I like to see these things as a challenge. I actually used this cage in a thing, and it was uh, between Sting and Sean O'Hare, 
who would go to win the world title and turn villainous and go full on demonic. Like we saw a glimpse in his WWE days, but he never really mm. went with it. And they had an epic battle over the over the world title in this cage. So uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm a bit I'm a big fan of it. And the, the match, as Adam said, the match isn't too bad. It's just the usual stench of everything we've seen on this show just has to just has to be thrown over it. Yeah, I mean the the only problem I've got with this triple cage is how difficult it is to do anything standing on top of uh, a cage ceiling. So basically, trying to walk across chicken wire. It Agreed. it's just not conducive to um it's not conducive to good wrestling. I agree with that, but I've got to say, even then, it's still more structurally safe than um, than the Doomsday Cage was. And you'll remember there was an era oh, where definitely. Yes. there was an era where the Hell in a Cell matches in WWE regularly went up to the roof, and they made sure that was looked after as well. So it can be done, depending. One thing this has just reminded me of, though, is we, we've all taken a bit of a dump on the Ready to Rumble film that first used this cage. But the more I think about it. Do you know what? That was a lousy film, but those last scenes where the the fictitious Jimmy King good guy character and the villainous DDP battle for the title in this cage. Do you know what? Not only did I actually, I actually enjoyed that uh, end scene so-called match, but if you think about it, in the year 2000, that was one of the very first cinematic matches. <laughs> ah, I didn't think and about it. Do you know what? The rest of the film is garbage, but the, the, I thought it was pretty good. It's, it's an epic thing, and and this whole structure does. It's perfect for multi-camera, you know, epic editing. You know, it's 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 tailor-made for that. So you, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the film isn't very good, but it's it, it's fun. It's not going to win any awards. Oh yeah, but it's, it's a sort of it's thing. Get, you know, pleasure, absolutely. Yeah, get some lads together. And, and put it on. I went to a event at the Prince Charles where where they showed it, and you know everyone had a good time. And then we all went and made fun of it in the pub straight afterwards. <laughs> best way, best way to do it. Uh, do you know? Do you know? I must make a confession. I've never seen it. Oh, I've never I, seen it. You should. I have we to. are absolutely going to cover it well, because it's a WCW thing. We absolutely do have to do an episode, a special episode, looking at Ready to Rumble. Yeah, you absolutely have to. And there'll become a point, there's one line in the film that I'm not going to do it in the exact same style, but Liam will not, I'm on about, um, where they say wrestling's not fake. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever had 30 men do that in unison in an all-bar one in Leicester Square. Best feeling ever, mate. Best feeling ever. <laughs> awesome. We are no longer welcome in the all-bar one in Leicester Square. <laughs> Okay, so overall overall impressions of this pay-per-view then. I mean you you have memories of watching it as a as a fifteen year old Adam, memories now of watching it twenty years later. How how was this how was this for you? Ah, it's it hasn't aged well. Some things age like a fine wine, other things age like milk. This is very much on, on the milk side of things. But it was it was fun. It didn't make me as angry as as I thought it would. <laughs> that's and, that's always a good sign. Well, because when we talk about kind of particularly year two thousand WCW, there's so much venom in in the narrative that sometimes we just forget to just take a step back and kind of laugh at it, kind of a, a little bit. And 
and enjoy it. And you just, you know, because there's good stuff in here. It isn't a, a terrible show by any means. It's just overbooked and a prime example of why WCW is no longer with us. But no, I, I, I thoroughly had fun for three hours. Liam? Yeah, I think the consensus generally is that if you had to watch a WCW offering from right at the beginning of the year when Kevin Sullivan got back in power and uh, and Hulk and all that were back on top, or one of these convoluted messes that is the Bischoff and Russo. Most people would pick the Bischoff and Russo pay-per-view because, as Adam put it, you, you're going to have stuff that grabs your attention. Not necessarily in a good way, but I suppose you'd rather be appalled than outright bored, and, that, and that's the comparison there. But overall, yeah, 2000 was a rotten year, and it was what... It was, you know, there's, there's always a debate what killed WCW. Of course, it's a, it's a compound of various things, but the year 2000 was just, they were never going to recover from that. And even if had, even if Fusion had managed to uh, make a deal for it and somehow kept them on TV, uh, they, it would have been a show. I, I think they would have absolutely had to concede that the, the Monday Night Wars, the wrestling wars were over and and that those they were a clear number two. Obviously, most of us would have loved for that to happen because it means you still have an alternative, just like we loved it when, yes. when TNA was you know nowhere near WWE, but they were still doing good stuff. Great. Yeah, and, and AEW, you know, AEW they, now, they, they yeah. won't have the market share of WWE, but if they're out there uh, moving some furniture and making some things happen, it, it enhances the overall product. So, who knows? But the, the, any any time I look at those in 2000, it just reminds me of what they did to themselves. Yeah. That, that, um, that wiped out the scene for many, many years. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, based on what we'd seen at Spring Stampede, I was kind of dreading this one, but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as I thought. And there are a couple of really good matches in there you know Steiner v uh, Hugh yeah. Morris or General Captain Rection um, I think it's the best aw- of the awesome, four awesome and Canyon yeah of, of what's considered the millionaires club versus new blood era I mean they've completely forgotten about it. after four pay-per-views you've got Spring Stampede you've got Slambury Great American Bash as I said when we cover that as a mess Bash at the Beach is infamous with the Hogan Russo stuff that was a mess as well uh, if you had to watch one of the four, this is the better of the four. But you know, that's just thinking of you know, which, which is the better tooth to have pulled out. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. Well, that that brings our review of this pay per view to a close. Adam, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us uh, reviewing this. Very much appreciated. If people want to get a hold of you on social media, where can they find you? It's Adam underscore Pearson on the old Twitter sphere. That's where you'll hear most of my ramblings about wrestling and and other other stuff. And of course, you are a, a regular contestant on the Sunday night Hooked on Wrestling wrestling quiz. I am with with Robert Nicol and Showbiz's Paul Benson. So uh, yeah, if you uh, want to take part in that, that is. Uh, go to the Hooked on Wrestling uh, Facebook page at 8pm every Sunday night. You can get a hold of us, of course, on Twitter as well, at BecauseWCW, especially if you can tell us why Kansas City is in Missouri. Um, or we're on Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. So, on behalf of Adam, on behalf of my co-host Liam, this is me, the Twisted Genius, saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you ringside.